welcome to Beyond Barriers. And our guest today is Jack Buckby from England. Jack, uh, welcome to the program. Cheers for having me on. It's good to be here. So we want to ask you a, a few different things. Uh, actually, I should say my guest host tonight is uh, Acacia Dietz from Beyond Barriers as well. Um, Jen is off for the evening, so we're going to go ahead and uh, and uh, do the interview. And uh, Jack, we wanted to ask you, um, it's kind of interesting because we just uh, came into contact in the last month or so, and, and uh I think your story is absolutely fascinating uh, coming out of the coming out of the far right and uh, the work that you do now. Um, if you could just tell us in, in part a little bit ab about your uh, past history and, and up to what you're doing now. Yeah. So as you as you know, my my history is kind of complicated and it's a whining story. So I'm sure we'll get through it. But in short, when uh, I grew up in a working class English town near Liverpool in England, um, and in around 2008, about the time of the crash, um, immigration was very much on the table as a story in the news because um, it, people in towns like mine were struggling for work. And meanwhile, um, it, at least the perception was, and kind of the numbers showed too, that immigrants weren't struggling for work as much, or in some instances where I was from, were working for less than minimum wage under the table while British lads didn't have work and things. So it became a hot topic. And I was a teenager. I saw an election campaign that was taking place. And, you know, at 15, 16, you're kind of figuring the world out a bit. And you, you observe these real, you know, issues around you. And when you see someone on the television, as I did, which was Nick Griffin, who was the, you might know, you know Nick Griffin, maybe some of the viewers do. He was the leader of the British National Party. When he appeared on TV as part of an election campaign saying, hey, immigration's too high, it's affecting working class people, and we want to talk about that. Me being a, a teenager went, well, that's true. How, how can I disagree with that? I didn't know the past of the BNP at that point. I didn't know its neo-Nazi history and stuff like that. And I ended up joining the party, becoming active with it, within it for multiple different reasons, which, again, we can go into. Um, but I just became entrenched in what I would say is the far right, white nationalists. Um, and it, it, it came out of seemingly nowhere. I was just a normal, non-political lad, had never thought about race in my entire life. But the issues drove me there. And it wasn't just immigration. It was the Muslim grooming gang problem where white girls and Sikh girls, basically non-Muslim girls, were being systematically uh, abused and raped all over the United Kingdom. And it turned out that the police were, were covering it up. Um, I, I learned about those issues and all these things compounded to the point where I realized the politicians don't want to talk about these issues because they're inconvenient. The media will slander you and smear you if you say anything about it. And then there's these far left lunatics on the street who I saw over the years getting worse as I got more involved. And I thought, well, to hell with this. I'm just going to support the people who talk about working class issues. So I was very active in the BNP up until about 2012. I've been out of that world for a very long time now. But uh, ever since I've been uh, conservative, I was involved in counter jihad politics. I was involved in populist movements who a lot of people would consider unpleasant. Um, but, you know, uh, certainly very different to the, the, the real far right, the white nationalists. But uh, I, I've got a controversial history up until even just a few years ago, if I'm honest with you, mostly because I've got a gob. I don't shut up. 
I will shout from the rooftops and I don't care if people, well, at least I didn't care if people thought I was the bogeyman. I would just say things that were offensive to make a point. And I'm very different these days. The last few years or so, I've been sort of, you know, I'm 27 now. So I'm sort of getting out of that stage of being a young, angry man and settling into, you know, an, an adult. So I've, I've changed who I am and changed my direction. And this is where I am now. Well, it's it's really a courageous and, and brave thing to, to walk away from the far right, uh, from, from any sort of extremism, whether a person's on the left, the right, involved in a cult, a gang, um, or anything like that. So, you know, we definitely appreciate that. And, and uh, we're happy to have you on because you are uh, opinionated, you know, you speak out and, and uh, that's how we came across each other is, is um, I saw you were uh, basically under attack by some people from the far left. And I looked at what you were saying and it, it all seemed really sensible. So I think, I mean, that's, that's something I think we should definitely discuss a little bit um, is when someone, and, and maybe you'll agree with this or not, and Acacia as well, feel free to interject at any time. But one of the things that we've noticed with Beyond Barriers, with the nonprofit organization that we uh, operate is that a lot of former extremists, especially particularly we're working with mainly a largest, a largest amount of the people are coming from the far right because that's where we're known from, you know, so they know who we are. And uh, from the years of experience being there, unfortunately, uh, so a lot of people will reach out. And um, politically, what we're seeing more often than not is a lot of these people still hold conservative views like like yourself and um but they've left extremism so i, I think that's that's probably something that's uh probably really interesting to the viewers because as as some of the commentary i've seen and uh discussions that we've had and and things that i've seen you post um quite often in my experience we're seeing people on the far left getting really agitated instead of instead of saying hey, it's great. This person's left to far right. They're not involved in racism. They're not involved in hate, but they're still conservative. The far, the, the other side of the coin, the people seem so, are so radical and so intolerant and so extreme that they can't even recognize that people have changed. And I think it's normal and natural. I think a lot of times when someone leaves, especially, uh, you know, to maintain some of those uh, conservative views, but what are your, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I see. So I, I, I consider myself largely a conservative for the most part. There's, there's liberal sides of me. And so I'm very engulfed in that conservative world. And I see so much talk about the culture war, which is a very real thing. We're seeing it on the streets right now. We're seeing cities being burned down. There's a, there's a literal culture war going on. And I think there's a part of that culture war that nobody's talking about. And it, this is why I was so like relieved when I saw you. It's like, oh my God, someone else sees this. There's a part of this culture war that nobody really sees because I guess they don't get this world of de-radicalization, counter-extremism. And I'm still very new to this world too. Um, and what they don't see is that something really dark is happening behind the scenes. The idea uh, or the definition of what it means to be de-radicalized the definition of that has been controlled and is being controlled by really dangerous far left extremists. And we can't fool ourselves and pretend they don't exist. If the far right exists, the far left exists too. And what I'm seeing is so many of these people in this world are 
they're taking it upon themselves to decide what it means to be de-radicalized. And so often it means you have to become like hugely in favor of immigration uh, or at least mass immigration. You have to be completely in favor of multiculturalism and hate the idea of a unifying national identity, even though a unifying national identity in 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 my books, is actually one of the most powerful unifying forces between people of different racial communities. You have to accept that uh, the idea of a British culture or an American culture is is inherently evil and colonial and, and should be gotten rid of. You have to change the education system. You have to have twelve pronouns. And like, unless you unless you fit that definition, you're not de-radicalized. And that's really scary because that implies that the only people who are not extreme are left wing. What about the millions and millions of people who consider themselves conservatives, the people in the UK who voted for a conservative government, the people in the US who voted for a Republican uh, president? We are not faced with 50% of the population being extreme. That is untrue. So this idea that being de-radicalized means to shift to the far left is wrong. But they know they can get away, or at least they've been getting away with it for this long, because it's such a difficult topic. The moment you say, you can de-radicalize, you can leave race hatred, um, but you can be a conservative. Oh, that's a really difficult topic because you're still saying, oh, maybe immigration should be controlled and mm, racist, fascist, you know? So I'm willing to stick my head above the parapet and say, no, s- screw you. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I de-radicalized a long time ago. I, I'm largely a conservative. I believe in a national identity. I don't believe in, like, burning down the system as black lives matter says um but it doesn't mean i'm still a nazi i thank you so much for uh explaining that in in uh such vivid detail too and you know just for the viewing audience as far as like i get asked that too with like where my political stance is i would say more for me i'm a more classic liberal that i'm pretty much open and accepting of of everything you know yeah. but i still get called a nazi for for uh pointing out some of these things like you're talking about. And, and uh, what I find it really interesting ab- about that as well is these, uh, some of the people, it's like if you don't embrace their idea of of extremism, and we'll just call it what it is, I, I feel like if you're calling absolutely everything racist that is falling under the conservative banner, which half of the country, if not more, you know, believe in, you're being called a racist and a bigot. And right now we've got in the United States and in different parts of the world too, but uh, we've got so much uh, division right now. And uh, all of a sudden we've got race, you know, race politics on everything. You know, it's everything is, is focused on race. We were supposed to be done with that when Obama got elected president. You know, if, if this country- racial president, right? What's that? The post-racial president, they say. Yes, yes. I mean, that was that was the big thing. It was like, hey, America doesn't have race problems anymore. We've got a black president, you know, and now all of a sudden, they're, you know, the same people that were saying that, that, you know, the country's not racist, are speaking about how the entire country's racist and we're doing all these things and everything has to be burned and destroyed and the end of capitalism. And and um, I, I feel like they're they're almost so brazen and obvious about it now uh you know where you know that some of these people and i won't say the organization but i think if anybody looks it up the founders of a certain organization that that's all over the news right now are telling the public they are trained marxists if you read their 
uh, the definitions of the stuff, they're saying that they're saying Marxist things and they're being very open and honest about it, which, of course, you know, I, I, I think it's good to be open and honest about it. But that's what would, it is. And, and I would like to know to these people who say that Black Lives Matter isn't extreme and supporting Black Lives Matter means you literally only believe Black Lives Matter, which is a nonsense, because of course I believe that. Um, but these people that claim that supporting Black Lives Matter and that that organization isn't extreme, I would like them to define to me what they think extremism is, because um, Hank, um, I forget his name, Hank something, he was one of the um, organizers of Black Lives Matter, appeared on Fox News. And he said, if you don't give what give us what we want, we will burn this American system down literally or figuratively. That's what he said. Now, he would not be saying literally or figuratively if he didn't mean literally, because we're seeing them do it literally. So I would pose to those so-called counter extremism activists the question, what therefore is extremism? That's a good question. I, I would I would like to see the answer to that one because I I don't think that's one I don't feel like they're going to be honest on. They're going to spin it around, and when you question these things, um, you're instantly labeled a racist or or a hate monger or a bigot or a fascist or a Nazi or things like that. And it's it's absolutely not true. It's just it's being used as like a word to bully people that don't that don't fall into that category of what they're standing up for. And I'm not. Personally, I'm, I'm being very neutral on this, I, I feel like, where I'm not taking sides. But I, I came from an organization where I promoted hate, race hate, for 27 years. I'm not going to turn around and endorse something that uplifts one race over another or that, that gets involved in this racial politics and racial hatred. And I know you both feel the same way because we're all out of, uh, of, of extremism. But um, another thing in, uh, that I wanted to ask you about, Jack, too, is, and uh, or actually I want to bring Acacia a little bit into the conversation. Um, when I first read about your story and, and heard about your um, experience, working with Acacia, who had also been involved in the National Socialist Movement at, in the propaganda, she had up, headed up uh, NSM Media for, uh, for a short time, even and and she was involved in the propaganda department of the organization, and um, her story is very very similar to to yours as far as left wing extremism. Uh, you know, as from correct me if I'm wrong, but you felt like the extremism from the left uh, radicalized people on the right. Or if you could explain that, actually, I don't want to assume things. Like if you could explain that, and then I want to ask uh, Acacia to how, uh, how that paralleled with her story because to me it seemed almost identical sure i mean i i detail this in um I, I don't mean to sound like i'm just being opportunistic here but i i wrote this book of course so i, I wrote it in the book and um it it's something i needed to get off my chest because so as you know it's it's a gradual progression right especially when you start at a young age like i did and you you sort of step you know a toe into that world and then it's gradual right and a series of events go by that push me further in. And as I was entering that world, which I first entered because of politicians being uncomfortable talking about immigration affecting working class towns, and then the Muslim grooming gang scandal, which again, politicians were not talking about and have since admitted that they should have done. And then as I was getting into that world, I went to college and college in the UK is where you go before university. So it's between 16 and 18. And I'm in my first year of college. And at this point, I'd always been 
actually really shy. You wouldn't think that I'm a gobshite these days, but I know I used to be extremely shy and mild mannered and mild tempered. And I was walking through college one day and somebody walked past me from my law class. He knew me. He walked past me, spat on the ground and said scum as he walked past me. And that was just like, for me, that like a mild mannered sort of young lad, like that, that's still embedded in my brain. I Because that was the first time. That was the first time I experienced it. And it just descended from there. And suddenly all these rumors started. Did you know Jackson Nazi? Did you know? At this point, I had entered a legitimate political party that was polling well in the United Kingdom that had neo-Nazi roots granted, but was modernizing. I was one of the people that joined it on the face of the it modernized and was more like a, a populist nationalist movement than white supremacist or whatever. So at this point, I wasn't even, I didn't know as much as I did as, as time went by. I wasn't as radical. I wasn't saying racist things. There came a point where I was, but at this point I wasn't. And someone called me scum. And I thought, like, at that point, all I'd said was, like, maybe we should talk about these issues that are affecting my people in my town. So that kind of hit me. And then as time went by, I saw how really extreme they were. They they came to um, uh, Hope Not Hate, or I think it was Hope Not Hate. One of these left-wing organizations came to our college and gave a speech. And they saw me wearing a tweed jacket. I used to always wear tweed. I love tweed. Um, and I had my BMP jacket, uh, a badge on my lapel. And I'm sat in the audience waiting for this speech to start. And I was genuinely interested to see what these left-wing people were going to say. And they see the BNP badge and they start going, a fascist in a suit is still a fascist. And then they tried to kick me out of the room. And I'm like, I'm a 16-year-old lad. Like, what do you want from me? So then I saw that. And then I went to a rally. I saw an old lady get punched in the head by someone from Antifa. And at this point, I was like, hang on a minute, right? This is where I came up in the book with this idea of the three-pronged attack. And I think it is, the far left is kind of like the last peg in this. Mm -hmm. I think it starts with the politicians ignoring issues that are inconvenient to talk about. We've seen this in America. We're seeing, we've seen it in Britain too. They refuse to talk about those issues. And then you as a working class person think, well, maybe the media is going to talk about this. Maybe the media is going to talk about grooming gangs. And you look to them, then they smear you as well. You're all racist. And so the final thing you've got left is maybe go out on the street and do a protest, which I did. I used to go and protest against the grooming gangs. And what happens there? You see people getting punched in the face. You get bricks thrown at you. And at that point, you're ready and raring to go. F the world. Screw you all. I don't care what you think. And honestly, that motivated me to be. I, I, I got to a point wherever they would call me a racist, I would say something horrible. like Because I thought, well, screw you, you know? Yep. No, I, I can totally understand that. Now, you were talking about how, like, you know, the left was kind of the final straw for you. And that's kind of how it wound up with me. Like, I never, ever would have thought that I would have um, ever been part of the far right at all, period. I just never did. Um, I grew up fairly conservative. Um, not a racist bone in my body. Like I was not raised like that at all. Um, at all. Like the way I've always been, I have a huge passion for people, just humans. And I started paying more attention to the political climate. I was really active in politics when I was younger, but then as I got older, you get busy with life and kids and just everything. So then 
the, the politics kind of went by the wayside. Well, then um, it was probably pretty soon after Trump was elected and whatnot. It was probably about 2017. I started paying more attention to it. And then I started seeing how dehumanizing the left was. And you described it perfectly. You're a 16 year old kid. You actually wanted to hear what these people had to say. But because you had a badge on your lapel, suddenly you're a fascist, you're a Nazi, and you don't matter, and you are the enemy. You know, yeah. it goes back to, like, the us versus them. Um, and, like, I just, I didn't understand it. It made me angry because the left was dehumanizing the right, the same that they were accusing the right of doing to them. Right. So, you know... My initial goal was to be like, look, you know, these are people too. And then everything, I just, it, you just kind of go down the rabbit hole from there. But it's, it's very difficult to, um, to not get caught up in that, you know, cause like you said, you know, if you're going to call me a Nazi, if you're going to call me a racist, well, then I'll give you a reason to call me that. Right. Um, right. right. And it, it, it becomes that because then you become more angry. You become more enraged. You're like, you're tired of trying to explain to them that, look, I just want this, this, and this. And they're addressing these issues. Um, you had mentioned once, let me pull it up here in your book, about um, you said, uh, when the politicians are willing to address the difficult issues that affect normal people, Neo-Nazis and genuine far-right extremists have no ground to stand on. And I, t I, I was reading it and, you know, I messaged Jeff and I'm like, look, it's true. Because that, that's all the ammo the far-right needs is right there. Yep. What are your thoughts on that one? I, that literally stuck out. I mean, it's right in the beginning of your book, but it stuck out very quickly because it's, that's what nobody's talking about. Because everyone, or not everyone, a lot of people assume that, I'm just going to say far right, I mean, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, whatever, but people obsessed with race. Um, right. Anti-Semitism, that stuff. Uh, I, had to, I had to do a whole chapter on this book just to define the far right. It's that bloody complicated. And like, just quickly, like the point I made with the far right is... Um, I don't want to engage in this war of trying to redefine what far right is because so many Americans come at me saying, well, far right technically means ultra libertarian. And it's like, don't give me that. Nobody understands that to mean that. So I'm not right. going to have this futile war of trying to redefine it. I'm just going to try and like fine tune it. So I generally, when I say far right, I mean white supremacist, white nationalist, anti-Semite, I think is a good sort of catch all. Um, but yeah, this idea that um, the far right exists and is radicalizing people based on that i guess that's the question i would ask uh, these left-wing de-radicalization people is what do they think is the like the keystone of that radicalization do they think it's made up because i mean if if neo-nazis were trying to recruit based on i don't know there's a conspiracy I don't know. I, I couldn't even give you an example, but if they if they were going to radicalize people based on a conspiracy that has no tangible effect on the person's life, they're not going to be able to do that. A flat earther is not going to be able to convince me. They do convince some people, and that's an entirely different psychological thing, I think. But unless there's a tangible effect on my life, 
why on earth would I have even looked at the BNP? If there wasn't a legitimate grievance as the keystone, what would be the gateway? Now, of course, there's always going to be a small amount of people who join crazy things based on without that keystone because they're looking right. for something, right? But I, I, I would split those people into two. I argue that there's joiners and there's principled fanatics. A joiner is someone maybe with psychological troubles. Um, a lot of times in the far right, I think we've talked about this, Jeff, uh, lads with autism. Um, oftentimes it's people who are from a broken home or have no friends and they want to be part of a community. So I would describe that as a joiner. So for a joiner, there doesn't need to be a keystone. They just want to be a part of something. And I know lads who are like that. One of those lads is in prison for either attempting to or throwing a Molotov cocktail through someone's window. He was a conservative, then he was a Nazi, then he was a communist. What can I say? But for principled fanatics, which I consider myself to have been one, there's a keystone. There's something that pushes you there. And you can get rid of most of the power of extremist groups by tackling that keystone, whether it's immigration, whether it was Muslim grooming gangs, or even even multiculturalism. And I know this is a difficult topic because it, it causes a bit of division and people go, oh, well, you know, uh, it, it sounds like it's far right or whatever. And I get that. I get that. But the idea that multicultural, uh, multiculturalism is a moral default is actually not a popular opinion. Public opinion polls in the United Kingdom show repeatedly that a majority of Brits um, think it's failed and actually believe in a unifying national culture. So, but the politicians don't talk about that because the, the, the power of the cultural sphere is so big that if you say that you're a racist now, which is crazy. Um, if we can talk about these things more honestly and openly, and I'm not saying everyone has to agree about culturism or multiculturalism, but if we can at least talk about these issues, it takes so much power away from the extremists on both sides, but yep. particularly the far right. So rather than playing this constant game of whack-a-mole, which is what I feel like these guys are doing, the people that claim to be de-radicalizing people, I'd like to know who, um, I would like them to consider the possibility that constantly going after one and then another and then another and then another, and it's just like this endless game. You can knock it out at the bottom and the tower comes crumbling. Yeah. You're right. And, and they're not they're not de-radicalizing people. I mean, that that's that's the issue. They claim to be doing that. And once in a great while, we see these these individuals that leave the far right and join the far left or vice versa, leave the far left and join the far right. That's not somebody that's letting go of extremism. That's just an extremist that's flip flopping from one extreme, yeah. one extremism to another. They're not they're not truly de-radicalizing. So I think what what you're saying is is that the power of dialogue and discussing these these national issues um, are is is more powerful than anything and i and i agree with that as well i mean i think we need to discuss these things and even even if it all comes down to it we're not all going to agree that you know there's a certain way that these things are done and and, and things like that but as far as as how these people are de-radicalizing others when you're, it, it, we'll just use, and I agree with you on the on the far right because even like what I was involved in in national socialism, it's neither right nor left. It has some very left wing things yeah. and it has some very right wing things. So I, I agree with you. This this label of far right, uh, you know, we're just it's a label. It's a broad brush, but um, you know, just getting people out and getting them. Uh, you know, for the first the first step of of de radicalization is to get someone to disengage from. Yeah 
from the organization, you know, if they're involved in that. And then you can work on the, you know, other things, other things later. But the first step is to disengage because you, then you get them out of that echo chamber. But I, I feel like a lot of the people that are um, engaged in these, in the de-radicalization sphere, so, you know, whatever we want to call it, CBE, and I, I'm not trying to uh, minimalize the work that they do or, or disrespect it or anything like that. But I do see the fallacies and I do see how it's not going to work. If you if your goal in the de-radicalization process is to tell somebody from one side or the other, whether it's far left or far right, that they have to think the opposite, you, you've already lost before you started. You're not, that's not going to happen. It's not realistic. And, and you don't want somebody... F- I don't want to take somebody out of the far right and bring them into the extreme far left or vice versa either. I don't, you know, because they're equally as dangerous. They're symbiotic. They, they, uh, they feed off of each other and they both potentially can breed violence. Um, and I think when you talk about multiculturalism, I think it's a trigger word for a lot of people and that they, I know, I understand what you're saying, but I think a lot of people, their ears shut off when, when you bring those things up. But as what, it, how you explained it and what you're talking about, like a national identity, this is something just a few years ago in America that everybody was driving around with American flags off their cars. And, and it was a big, big deal to be patriotic. It was really right. quite, quite a, a thing just a few years ago. This wasn't like, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. This was just like a couple of few years ago. And it was a big deal. And um, now, right now, the the masses and the mobs are calling for the end of end of the system and we need to tear everything down and everything is racist and everything is based on race honestly like some of these some of these extremists and i I don't want to just keep painting the far left as the bad guys and i've been accused of that before but it's like everything they're focusing on has to do with race you know whether it's black lives matter or or anything else and then people that are saying there was a girl and this is a really sad, uh, upsetting story, but there was a girl in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, a couple of few weeks back uh, during the riots and all these things that have been going on here that uh, got into some sort of argument with Black Lives Matter people. And she had said, you know what, all lives matter. And she ended up with a few bullets in her head and dead. And she had a little baby at home, three years, two or three years old. And this was barely even mentioned in the news. Like, this is the kind of stuff that's happening. And it's all racial politics. It's almost like I'm this is this is something that I that I'm a comparison I want to draw. But I feel like this is what we did in the National Socialist Movement. This is what Nazis and the Klan did. Like everything was about race. It was all about white people, this, white people that, white people this. Now you know, if you say that, of course, that's racist or whatever, because you're pointing out white people. But over here, you have other people saying, well, we should uplift this group or that group. And it's all race based. It's like the Nazis and the, and the Klan are are running the show, except it's it, it's far. Uh, the politics are extreme left on top of it. And you're supposed to be apologizing and, and uh, uh, you know, and I'll probably catch hell for this too, but you know, some of this stuff about um, that we're starting to see here now, and I don't know if they have it in England or not, Jack, but um, like in Seattle, for example, they had courses, specific courses in Seattle. And I'm just hearing that some of this stuff is going on a national level now too, but I don't have uh, the details in front of me on that. But 
in Seattle, so we use this as an example because I am aware of this specific course. Someone brought out a course and only white people were subject to it. And it was basically saying, hey, you need to be uncomfortable as a white person and you need to maybe lose some of your white friends because um, you need to hear what other people are saying and this sort of thing. And if you feel like you should, you know, that you're entitled to an opinion, you need to be quiet because your opinion should be basically silenced. You should let other people talk. And it really, uh, what it boils down to, what I saw was, oh my gosh, this is something, if I was still involved in the movement, the and Acacia as well from a propaganda standpoint, you wouldn't have to even find the propaganda. It's literally right in front of your face. Um, it's it's radicalizing people because what it's doing is it's it's what I'm what I'm seeing. I guess what I'm trying to explain here is, and I'm getting emails from regular people too that have said things like, "I never liked the Nazis. I never liked the NSM. I thought you guys were a joke." When I would, you know, and I didn't, I don't like the clan. I'm not racist. These are, you know, people, just random people that are emailing me through the website. They're saying, but you know what? I'm seeing a race war coming or I'm seeing civil war coming and it's all being forced on us by the left. And, you know, nothing's good enough. White people are being asked to do this and this. And it's, I mean, in the very simplest of terms, having a course for only white people and saying everybody else doesn't have to come to it and only only these people we can insert any race here but that only white people shouldn't be voicing their opinions and things like that if that's not racist i don't know what is and what we're seeing is it's radicalizing a whole new generation of people that would have never joined the the far extreme right would have never gotten involved in this stuff a lot of these people i don't feel like maybe didn't even have a racist bone in their body but now, because of these racial identity politics that we're seeing, they feel like they have to get involved in some sort of tribalism. They have to tribe tribe up, you know, for out of fear, out of for protection, almost like in the prison systems in the United States, where a lot of people go in and they didn't have anything to do with racism. And in the prison systems here, or so-called justice system, everybody's tribed up. The blacks, the whites, the Hispanics, everybody is. Uh, quite often in their own tribes in there. And we're seeing this on a grand scale now. And as somebody that that had, you know, issues with racism and had hate in my heart in the in the past, seeing this is is just gut wrenching and, and heartbreaking to see that the racial identity politics in the United States are front and center and everything has to do with race. Now, um, we were supposed to be beyond this when we elected a black president here. But um that's the end of my rant on that you guys but. you know it's the, that made me think of a, a few things and the, the the first immediate thing is i would say when i was 15 16 getting involved with this seeing that far left stuff you had to kind of go looking for it so this was i don't know how what, what 2008 you kind of had to go looking for it. it was there but you had to kind of go looking for it no not many people in my hometown like knew half of the the sort of um, really far left talking points that you see every day today um, but it was there and it, it came about once you get involved with the politics once you see the media stuff and then the minute you start going on protests and seeing the world around you you started seeing that far left stuff and you were being exposed to it and the hatred that they had now it's everywhere it's immediately visible to people that had never seen it before at one time 
it was that far left stuff was you just saw it on Tumblr or something, or you saw it in universities. If you were on a, a the freshers' fair at university, you'd see like the Marxist stall and stuff. It wasn't there for everyone to see. Now, blatant, like let's be honest. I mean, we've we've seen that with that. Um, I forget the name. It's uh, uh, a famous black guy who has this. Sh Nick, is it Nick Cannon? Nick Cannon. Anyway, um, he he. Uh, did this podcast the other day where he was talking about how white people are inferior because we have no melanin and therefore means we don't have a soul and we're closer to animals. And this is mainstream stuff. This is there and accessible. And I've had people recently, people I know, who I was shocked. The things they said to me, like after seeing these Black Lives Matter riots, I'm like, like, that was something I would have said back in the day, and I'm hearing it from thoroughly normal people, and it worries me greatly. And by the way, not just from white people. I've had Asian yeah. people say things to me recently, and it's eesh. Um, and it's scary because it's stoking that division and causing people to pick a side. Um, another thing I would say, and this is uh, from earlier on what you were saying, uh, about the way that people get de-radicalized, right? The way that people have a, a way out. I see a lot of these people who claim to be in, interested in countering extremism, who are very, very vocal about their siding with Antifa, Black Lives Matter, these really radical left-wing movements. Now, I remember being at university and having Antifa chasing me, literally, in the street, threatening to shoot me. I had a bodyguard at one point at university. Um, they were grappling with me in the street, stealing my belongings, throwing them over fences, um, nasty, nasty stuff, getting spat at. Um, you know, I had to meet with the police. It got so serious. Now, people who are claiming to be interested in de-radicalizing young, angry white lads are siding with people who are physically attacking them and endorsing that behavior. Now, what is that behavior likely to do? Because let me tell you, when, when I was even first getting involved with this, when they treated me like that, there was no chance in hell that I would reconsider leaving what I'd gotten involved with. You know, yeah. why would I? And let me tell you what would have been more effective. And again, I say this in my book, and it takes me back to, I remember when, I remember the first time a hit piece was written about me by a conservative. I was used to the left writing like terrible things about me all the time happened a lot i was in vice and um mclean's magazine in canada they used to call me like the nazi hipster and stuff like that um and i remember a piece being written about me i forget exactly what it was about now i just remember it was written by a conservative writer in, in the telegraph newspaper a guy called tim stanley and i remember reading it and it felt like a bit like a punch in the gut because back then i didn't the idea that a conservative would really viscerally hate me was kind of weird because I still considered myself kind of moderate. And the headspace I was in when I was, I was never basically, I would never have fit in at the NSM. I was not a neo-Nazi. I was not an anti-Semite. I was a, a, a conservative nationalist who would engage in racist behavior and, and things like that. I never really got extremely far into it, but I never saw the fact that the movement I was involved with was so radically different from the conservative one. I just considered it an extension of it. But of course, conservatives see it in a completely different way because it's a completely different... They don't hate people based on race. So he wrote this hit piece about me and it was a punch in the gut. And I remember thinking, and I've been lo looking back over the years, I think 
if he'd have reached out to me as a conservative guy, because I had male influence in my life, just not political influence. My my, my father and my the men in my life were um, of the old English opinion of you don't talk politics or religion, which does make for an easier life, I'll tell you. But um, if this man, this white conservative man, had reached out to me instead of writing that hit piece, I think at that point, which was maybe, I don't know, 2012 or something, things could have changed for me very quickly. I think it must have been earlier than that, actually, maybe 2011, I forget. But things could have changed for me um, because it would have been somebody at least willing to understand, but they didn't. So I think the the best way to do this is to, first of all, offer people that chance to disengage, as you say. But in order to disengage, they need somewhere to go. And I think most people who join the far right are more inclined naturally to be maybe politically at least center right or something like that. A lot of those ideas are going to be center right, because as I was saying before, there's the keystone and that keystone is usually a socially conservative uh, issue that pushed them there. So wouldn't it be better to have them move to like the moderate right or move to a conservative position, be welcomed by someone from that political world and say, hey, this is how we view things. Maybe there's a better way of fighting back against this. But. I think that would be huge, way more effective. And I think it would work on the other side. If liberals were brave enough to start talking about the far left, they could bring these radical leftists over to a sort of classical liberal view too. We can both do it on both sides of the aisle here. But it doesn't happen because they don't want it to happen. I think there's a lot of people who genuinely don't want to de-radicalize. That's the reason why they endorse these people who were the same people that went on the street and physically attacked me. They want that fight. Because they are radicals. They want that fight. I actually, you know, I, the young men that I knew over the years, the, the main guy I talk in my book is a guy called Jack Renshaw. He's in prison now. He was a few years younger than me. He was from my hometown. We were good friends. Well, good friend. I didn't see him all the time, but we knew each other fairly well. We'd go to the pub, underage, of course, but uh, we'd go to the pub. And um, he seemed just kind of like me. And he went way deeper than I did. He ended up plotting to murder our local member of parliament. He's now in prison on a life sentence. And I I remember when I found out about that a few years ago, and it, it, it really shocked me. It's like knowing somebody who went that far, it's scary. And it's also sad because I was deeply troubled by the fact that the MP might have died. I don't support this MP's politics. I don't like her that much, but I don't think she's a bad person. And it horrified me the thought that he would target her. But it also horrified me that we're using, we're losing the lives of these young men too. Like, shouldn't we be concerned about them? Like, we can't just brush them off and attack them in the street. I mean, what does that achieve? What are you going to get from that? You're just going to push them further right. Exactly. It's it's further radicalization, you know. And and actually, you know, some of what, some of the people that were able to reach me were people on the left that, you know, challenged me on some of the ideas that I had and some of the political beliefs. And it's, it, it's a testament to the power of dialogue um, and exactly what you're saying as well, you know, and uh, and I've said it a million times, probably in every every show, but nobody's ever left the movement by getting punched in the face whether you're on the far right or the far left. I mean, it further radicalizes. I, I know I've, I've spoken of this as well, but when 
when I was in the NSM, when we had rallies and there was no violence and it was, you know, uh, just very minimal counter protesters and things like that, the guys um, in the group were very demoralized. They were like, oh, this was so boring. Why couldn't we have a big street battle and fight like what happened in New Jersey or what happened in, you know, this event or that event? And it, it really it, it energized people. It radicalized them. So this idea of, you know, being on one extreme or the other, it, it it's that's why I say it's symbiotic. It's like it feeds they feed off of each other and there is no there's no getting out of that. And I, I think this this racial identity politics that that so many people are engaged in right now in the United States is making it. Uh, I don't think a person should be working in uh, countering violent extremism whatsoever if they're if their ideology is that extreme that they're so far to the right or so far to the left that they would be endorsing things like riots and violence and and destruction. And I've seen it. I'm not going to name anybody, but I've actually seen it even not just in the former community. In the former community, I've, you know, we both have seen that, but in some of the academics as well. Um, and I, I won't name anybody, but I, I've seen some of the academics that claim to have worked in CVE. Some of them even have worked for the government and they're saying things, and I'm not even a big Trump fan or anything like that, but I've seen them saying things about overthrowing the government and destroying capitalism and, and just hateful things about Trump and, and all that. And it's like, okay, so Trump does make some mistakes. He says things that are not appropriate sometimes. And, and, uh, you know, he may even feed into racism a little bit by saying things like Kung flu and, and, and some of those, some of those type of things. So I'm definitely not sticking up for Trump, but what I'm saying is um, when someone is on the, the other end of the spectrum where they're actually endorsing violence or, or the destruction of the government and they're supposed to be working for the government or they're supposed to be working in de-radicalization. Are, are you insane? Like what, I, I look at this stuff sometimes and I have to, I have to walk away because it, it, it's so crazy. And if you, and a lot of times when you call it out or you point it out and say something, their only response is you're still a Nazi or you're a racist or that's bigoted. Or why are you talking about white people? Or it's yeah. like, it's so insane. Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen it myself too recently and it's, it's, I mean, I, 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 I'm struggling to think about what to say to that because I'm just, I've just been thinking about, um, as you were saying that, I, I was thinking about, a, I'm writing my, my first research paper at the moment. It's, I should be finishing it this weekend. It's on, it's on the topic of, uh, the COVID economy and extremism. And one of the arguments I make in, in this paper is that I've seen a lot of these de-radicalization. I don't even know what to call them. What do they call themselves? Counter extremists or whatever. Um, these counter extremists claiming that um, coronavirus has prompted a spike in far out activity or whatever. And I've looked at the reports and I'm not denying it. But what I am saying is I think that they're focusing on trivial things like they focused on um, in London. Some stickers went up about by some far right group that mentioned coronavirus. And I'm looking at it thinking. Was anyone's mind changed by those stickers? And did anyone see them? And like, who's changed my, whose mind is changed by a sticker? And then secondly, another one was about some secret Facebook group where someone said, well, they lied about the Holocaust, so they must be lying about coronavirus. And again, I'm thinking, whose mind did that change? And so the, these academics, this is why I'm thinking about this. The minute you said academics, it made me think. Um, 
they focus on the most trivial stuff. And I think it's because they do have an agenda. Whereas what I'm thinking is, actually, maybe there's something way scarier here. In 2008, that was one of the driving factors for the reason why the British National Party did extremely well. They got a million votes. They got two members of the European Parliament elected. One of the members of European Parliament that was elected, I once meant to, went to a meeting where I heard someone on stage say, and we all know that Hitler was right, to which this member of European Parliament was sat at the back of the room going like this. This was a guy presented as a moderate nationalist. You know, the BNP got those people elected, got a million votes, got a member of the Greater London Assembly elected with like 8% of the vote or something. It was crazy. And it happened in part because of the economic crash. And I was looking at some of the data. There's been some incredible reports done that goes back like 200 years. They look at 200 years of elections. And what they find is in times of economic crises, the far right does better. And the far left, incredibly, doesn't. And what I've been looking at is I think there's kind of a perfect concoction of um, circumstance right now that could see the far right actually really benefiting off the COVID economy, mm -hmm. particularly unemployment, because what we're seeing in terms of employment is it's um, uh, uh, non-university educated young workers who are affected by this, which was the same as the 2008 crash, um, combined with this sort of culture war that's going on, that's pushing young men like away out of the realms of like moderate politics. Those two things combined, I think, can create an even more toxic atmosphere than what we saw in 2008. Maybe that's what we should talk about rather than stickers about the coronavirus plastered all over London. And I'm seeing these academics posting this stuff online. I'm thinking, You've got a doctorate. I was kicked out of university for being a, a, a nuisance. Um, and I'm doing this stuff, which has, frankly, I, I'm looking forward to it coming out. I'm a bit nervous because it's my first report. I don't have a degree. And I think I'm analyzing threats that are actually way more concerning. Meanwhile, doctor this, that, or the other who's got three degrees is posting about some stickers. I, I saw some other woman from, I think it was the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. Now, I don't know much about the organization. I do know one person from it who's a good guy. But I saw one woman who, again, has a doctorate, and she wrote this report, and it read like something a 17-year-old girl would write. It was so unbelievably and unashamedly biased. If I'm being biased, I'll say. It was so unashamedly biased. And then it just casually just like flitted in a few lies here and there that were provable, verifiable lies that they just establish as truth and then just move on very quickly. Like one of them being, oh, and of course, President Donald Trump said the coronavirus was a hoax. Moving on. Da, 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 da. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Even Snopes, Snopes, which frankly is not that great a fact checker. Even Snopes says that that's not true. Watch the video. It's not true. So I think what we're dealing with here is a, a sort of class of academic people who have, in some cases, no understanding of the issues that push people to where they are. You know, I, I'd argue a lot of these these researchers and, and, and doctors that I've been reading lately have never been to a town like mine in their life. Um, and they are positioning themselves as experts and at the same time aligning themselves with people who have an interest in keeping young white men in that box and pushing them further to the right. And I'm greatly concerned about that. And I would be interested to know any of these people that we're kind of alluding to here, um, but it's really not specific people we're talking about. It's this general theme in this space that we all know exists. I would like to know 
if they're watching this, and I presume some of them will, what have I just said that's wrong? That's a good question. That's a really good question because what, you know, if they're working in that space, in my opinion as well, like um, everybody's got their political opinions, but I, I think you, you know, you shouldn't be, if you're working in that sphere, you shouldn't be pushing one extreme or another. Even if, even in your head, like if you're that far in the extreme and you think that the system should be burned down and destroyed and all this kind of stuff, if you think that you need to keep that stuff uh, to yourself if you're working on de-radicalizing anybody, because if, if you're working on, like, say you're that far to the left and you're working on helping de-radicalize somebody from the far right, do you really want, I mean, I know I don't want them to go and start burning things down. I mean, and this is, this is what concerns me. The radicalization that we're seeing of <clears throat> entire swaths of the population that would not normally have been radicalized, but they are starting to become radicalized because of this racial identity politics that we're, we're having and the cancel culture and all this, uh, all these crazy things that are going on uh, right now in society is we're seeing a whole new generation becoming radicalized. And um, we come, I mean, we've come out of those radical movements. I mean, I was, a, you know, an expert at recruiting for the far right because I understood the narratives. I understood what got people there. And, um, not to make excuses or anything either, but I think a lot of these every, different people have different agendas. But I think there's some people in the academic academia that have listened to some of the spokespeople that have come out of the far right. I mean, they weren't spokespeople for the far right before, but oh. uh, some of the formers that were uh, I see uh, some of some of them, not all of them, but a few of them especially being ex far left extremists. I don't think these people ever de-radicalize if, you know, they're calling for the destruction of capitalism and the destruction of the system and, you know, supporting rioting and or making excuses for it. That's not somebody that I want talking anywhere. I mean, that's that's somebody that's fomenting more hate, more violence, whether they're doing it under the guise of being against racism or not. Um, I, I see that very clearly what they are because I was an extremist for 27 years. So I, I see what they are and they've just simply switched extremism and, uh, from one to the other. But what worries me is the potential for violence when people, when one group of people is afraid, whether it's whipping up hatred and, um, against one race or one people or another, when people get afraid, and I know nobody that's in the, extremist movement would say, I ain't afraid of nothing. I get that. But when they're afraid, they lash out in violence. And if they feel like their voice is being taken away, and you know, you mentioned this a little bit ago, Jack, you know, about uh, being concerned about, you know, losing people's lives and, and things like that. And some of the people that you know, that have, you know, been sent away, and I, I can, I, I don't even know the, the number, there's so many I know that have lost their lives. Um, or died or been sent to prison for long periods of time. But beyond that, even the public, when you have somebody like these church shooters and synagogue shooters and mosque shooters that that's radicalized to that point that walks into a church or, or a synagogue, a mosque, whatever, and starts shooting innocent people, innocent, unarmed people. That's the kind of radicalism that 
that I worry about that I feel is coming. I feel like there's more. That was one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that I left the movement too, is that I felt like I could feel this violence is coming and I wanted to leave and I wanted to get out here and try to warn the public that this is this is coming if more and more people keep getting radicalized and keep getting where they feel like they're being pushed into a corner or that their voices or their opinions don't matter. They're not being heard. They're being silenced. Uh, I think a lot of times when you silence people, um, it, it turns into violence. And the for me, it's it's more it's it's less about saving that one guy that might do something than it. For me, it's more about the innocent people that that person could go murder. I mean, you could this person could go murder somebody that was going to cure cancer or or yeah. someone's grandmother, someone's child, someone's brother, sister, mother. I mean, the, the reverberations of destruction that could be caused by extremism and radicalization when a person gets that desperate. It, it could harm so many people. I mean, we're seeing extremism and it's not a popular thing to say, and I'm sure we'll catch flack for it, but we're seeing extremism in the streets of America right now where they're tearing down statues, they're destroying city halls, government buildings and things like that. And a lot of people say, well, you know, some of the statues should be removed anyways, you know, which, you know, I, I'm not even going to get into that. You know, maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't, but uh, I think, you know, at least some of them should go to a museum. So history is not destroyed. Um, instead of just wrecking everything, but it's it's gone beyond that where it's not for here, it's not just Confederate monuments. They're attacking statues of Lincoln uh, that were paid for it, by don't even know what they are. It's everything, yeah. yeah. Mostly because they don't, they, frankly, some of these people would, but I, I try to separate, um, I, I, I try to separate the ideologues from the, the followers and from the dumb people, because there are some dumb people, let's be honest about it. Um, I, I wrote a piece about this recently, and everyone thinks I'm this really far-right bogeyman that I'm like really nasty and like mean-spirited or whatever. And yeah, okay, in the past I've done some stuff, like uh, like four years ago or something, I went on national TV with this woman, and she was really far-left crazy, crazy girl. And I, I I remember meeting her in the the green room before we went live on TV, and I you know I was like, hey, do you want some water? I was pouring some water, and she just sat there like this nose up at me didn't want to talk to me i'm like i know we're political opponents but you know i'll get you some water saying hello didn't want to talk and um i went on tv and i handed her a piece of paper to take in a syrian refugee live on air because i knew she would say no um and i got really aggressive about it and said take in a syrian refugee i hope you don't get raped and that came from a place at the time when we had the migrant migrant rape crisis and it's something I've campaigned against very, for a very long time is the, the abuse of girls and women. And, you know, I, it shouldn't have been aggressive like that on TV. It doesn't help. Um, my idea was that it would just get people talking. I, I look back even just four years ago and I think I was a moron. Like, what was I thinking? It didn't help. It just made me look stupid, whatever. But anyway, that's the perception people have about me. But in reality, behind those sort of stunts that I would pull, I'm very conscious about how people feel. And I've been thinking about the Black Lives Matter thing a lot recently. What they're doing is dangerous. It is extremism. It, it contributes to reciprocal extremism. And it doesn't help um, cohesiveness in society. It gets rid of this idea of us being unified as one nation, which I think is just, that's just what's so powerful about being even patriotic, 
is is being unified by that one thing, the nation, or in the in the UK by the Queen, um, and it's so powerful. But with Black Lives Matter, I think it's important for us to recognise that while the people at the top are ideological and extreme, and many of the people on the street are ideological and extreme, there's also a section of them who aren't political at all. And that includes people on the street. It also includes the people who don't go out on the street and just who quietly support from home. Those people, uh, black people, are genuinely terrified. And they are, and I believe that they're terrified because I believe that they believe there is a war on black people. And they believe that because when you're not politically involved, you trust the people around you who say that they have your best interests at heart who are politically involved. You, you trust them. You trust them in your personal life or whatever. You trust them as a figure that you've known or seen for many years. And if they say, hey, the police hate you, white people hate you, the system's stacked against you, you'll never achieve anything unless the system's burned down to the ground. Oh, and by the way, the police might kill you if they get the chance. That must be a horrifying thing to learn. I mean, I, I cannot question the validity um, behind that pain because I believe it's very real. I think it's so dangerous what these people are doing, making people feel that pain. It's wrong to make them feel that pain because we know you can achieve something if you're not white. Isn't it crazy that I'm the racist for saying that you can achieve something if you're not white? This is the world we're living in now. And right. But I think it's so important that we acknowledge that because, I, as I was saying, people think I'm this, you know, angry young lad and I, I have been in the past but that's something I'm really worried about is the the actual mental space that people are in this is why this culture war is so divided is precisely because the pain is real because the fear is real oh and, absolutely uh, uh, and and I'm really grateful that you covered that because by no means when we're talking about this right and left thing are we trying to diminish the opinions and the feelings of of people that are involved in this and the emotional the emotional struggle is very very real and, and black people have been oppressed um, in various countries and I do feel like there's nothing wrong with uplifting of uh, uplifting those people and and the, the fears and the concerns are very real to say it's the same it's the same way with with anybody that's involved in in uh, this tribalistic type of thinking or in the racial identity politics. I, I do think it was really important that we we acknowledge that a lot of these concerns and fears, especially of all the different racial groups, you know, are legitimate, whether it's whether it's real or imagined, uh, a lot of people have this have this fear or concern that their group is being pointed out or discriminated against or things like that. And I don't want to diminish any of any of those groups or any of, or, and I want to make it clear to all of our listeners and, and people out there that we are by no means doing that. We do understand these nuances. We do understand these uh, uh, concerns, but we're pointing out why and how these, you know, racial identity politics can lead to extremism very easily. Um, and these are some of the things that got like all three of us and, and uh, many other people involved in, in these sorts of things. And you very quickly become, you can go from, being a, a regular everyday individual to somebody that's extremely radical. And, and most of the time, in my experience, when you fall or get involved in this type of extremism, you don't even realize it, how swept up in it 
that you become uh, really, really quickly, and it can and it can go um, as you mentioned. Uh, your friend from your city there, from someone that's just involved in the politics to someone that's trying to you know murder somebody or or you know throwing Molotov cocktails or, or shooting or things like that. So this is what you know we're trying to discuss, trying to bring out, and trying to stop. You know, we're trying to stop this type of extremism. And really, it doesn't matter if someone's right wing, left wing, middle of the road, libertarian, what all these different all these different uh, labels per se. It doesn't it also doesn't matter if you're black or white or Asian. We're all people. All all of people's lives matter, no matter who you are. And it's not racist to say that because all of us matter and we should all be uplifting one another, not just uh one group or making anyone feel excluded because anytime you get involved or uh, start singling people out based on race, to me, it sounds just like what I was involved in for 27 years, just uplifting white people or just, you know, uplifting one group or another. And it quickly leads to oppressing another group of people through that ideology. Jack, I wanted to, uh, it's it's uh, your platform this evening, and I want you to tell us a little bit about your book and where people can order it and um, what it's about. You know, I've seen some people after becoming more aware of this sort of counter extremism sphere. I've seen some people saying things like, um, I can't believe certain people get book deals and do these projects and all this, that, and the other. And while we're on the side, like, for, for starters, they behave as if they're the ones being sidelined, which is incredible because they control the entire narrative. Secondly, you can write a book, get a computer, write it on pen and paper if you like, get a typewriter, write a book, do the research. It's not easy. It's not easy, but you can do it. I've written three of them. I'm 27. You can do it. So this idea that I'm like, I know there's some like underhand dark forces going on. No, I, I wrote a book. It's interesting. And a publisher said, yes, we would like that. Anyone can do it. Um, but yeah, I wrote this. This um, can't miss it. It's got my face on it. Uh, it's on Amazon, Monster of the Own Making, How the Far Left, the Media and Politicians are Creating Far Right Extremists. And now I dedicated this book on, from the start to my friend Cherie. And I've got to mention her just out of respect. She died. Um, she was a, a skinhead sort of National Front neo-Nazi back in the 80s. And she came out of it. She was a really interesting woman because you know how we talk about being de-radicalized but not completely shifting to the other side? Cherie was a really great example of how you can just become a normal person. After leaving that world, you can become a normal person. She had some right-wing opinions. She was concerned about mass immigration. She was concerned about Muslim grooming gangs and would campaign for justice for young girls. At the same time, she was a bisexual feminist who was friends in like free speech societies. I forget the name of her book. It was The Something Vagina. She wrote a book, super feminist, left-wing, but she was kind of right-wing too. And she'd hang out with everyone and she still had the skinhead look with all the tattoos because what's she going to do? Get rid of a lifetime of tattoos? Not possible. She was fascinating. I loved her to bits. And Unfortunately, we fell out over something stupid and then she died and we never made up. But, I, I, uh, but I'm, I'm sure we would have made up, you know. Uh, but I dedicated the book to her because she was the one who pushed me to write this. There were a couple of people, but she was the main one. She's like, Jack, you've got to write this book because I've been talking to her for so long about those three things that I think are what 
pushed me there and which you were saying before, Acacia, you were saying it's similar experience with you. So many other people have said it to me too. It's this three-pronged attack. It starts by recognizing issues that politicians don't want to talk about. Um, well, I, thankfully, I think we're getting to a place where politicians want to talk more about it in America and in the UK. Exactly. We're, getting, we're getting there, which is a good sign. It's a good start. But it starts with the politicians not talking. Then it's the media who smear you as a racist, mostly if you're a white working class man. And then it ends by the far left sort of tying it all up in a bow and finishing off the job by throwing bricks at your head or punching old women in the street, as I saw when I was a teenager. And I needed to get that down. I needed to get that down because I was in a point where, like, I spent so many years after leaving the BNP back in 2012, I think it was, a long time ago now. I spent so many years on the defensive. Like, I was just, oh, Jack Butby, you can't really talk to him. He was in the BNP. It's like, how many years ago was this? And I would try and talk about it. And I was shut down by some people I worked for and with when I tried to talk about this because people in the conservative world don't want you to talk about the far right because it's inconvenient. It's not politically expedient to even acknowledge that it exists, frankly. And so I wrote this book telling conservatives, you've got to be honest about this. It doesn't mean you have to say that the far right is the same as you, because obviously it's not. But you've got to recognize that the far right exists just because the far left exists, just because Islamic terrorism exists doesn't mean the far right doesn't also exist. So conservatives mm -hmm. be more honest about that. And in the book, I also call on liberals to be braver about it, because I think actually much of the power to, to disarm the far right is in the hands of liberals. Um, and so I had to write this book and Sheree pushed me to do it. And I finally did it. And I took. I managed to write it quickly because I'd had a lot of notes down. Um, I, I took four months off work and just wrote it. And I'm really proud of it, really proud of it. And, you know, I'm not a bestseller. I'm not a big wig. I'm not super famous. But, I, you know, the, the feedback I've had from it is that it's really valuable. And I'm very pleased. And I, I'm hoping to do more with it uh, in the long run. But, you know, if anyone is interested, it's it's my story. There's plenty of stuff personally in there about me but i think it's an analysis that you guys would agree with and i'm so thankful to have found you guys i think it's one thing that people need to talk about more anyone watching this from the counter extremism sphere who's been having a pop at me lately um maybe read the book it's not expensive it's on kindle i'd give it away for free if i could but my publisher would never let me uh it's very it's cheap on kindle read it Maybe see what I've got to say. I know I can be a bit provocative at times. Maybe I've got a bit of a mouth on me. But, you know, like I said before, tell me something that I've said that's wrong. You know, give me something tangible, specific. Don't just call me. Um, you're still a racist. You're still a Nazi. Because I'm not. I'm not. And that's, as you guys will know, a Nazi will tell you if they're a Nazi. Absolutely. Uh, one last thing. I know we're getting short on time or whatever. We've actually gone over. But... Um, I guess my last question for you, Jack, for this would be if, granted, all of these issues are, they're not simple. A lot of people want to just, you know, be like, oh, well, it's it's just this or it's, it's, it's very black and white. But in reality, we live in more of a gray area a lot of times. It's not so cut and dry. Um, so a lot of these issues, there's a lot of things that play into them, which you describe in your book and we've discussed here a lot. But if if there is like just one tidbit that you could leave for anybody that's listening 
what would that be? One thing. You know, whenever I get asked these questions, I did an interview once, uh, Trigonometry, which is on YouTube. Actually, that's a really good interview if anyone wants to, wants to watch that. Trigonometry, uh, Jack Butler, you'll find it. And they asked me at the very end, what's one thing we're not talking about in society that we should be? And I was like, what we just talked about? I don't know. So that's a good question. You put me on the spot there. One thing I would leave with people. Well, I think I'd go back to what I kind of leave in the book, like towards the end in the chapter, How to Defeat the Far Right, which was originally going to be the title of the book. I think conservatives need to be more honest and liberals need to be braver. So conservatives need to stop pretending that the far right doesn't exist. It doesn't matter if it's small. The point is that it has the potential to grow and it will spike at certain times. And uh, when that happens, you, you never know just how many young men are at home feeling this stuff and you never right. know what they're going to do. And we know they're there because they message us and they're there and we were there. I was there. Um, they exist. So don't pretend they don't exist because it's politically expedient. Yes, I know the far left is attacking you, you know, but just because the far left attacks you doesn't like, do you really think it helps to deny the existence of the far right? It makes you look delusional and crazy. And also it's, it's not a good thing for society. So you should be admitting it, saying, Hey, maybe, maybe there's a way we can solve this. And actually, if they're interested in it, conservatives should look at it this way. It's a great way to get a dig in at the left. If that's the way they're thinking about it, because they always want to get a dig in at the left. This is a way to do it because they're actually aiding the progress of the far right. So conservatives, be honest, liberals, if they. OK, so I describe liberals uh, and the far left as kind of like the owner of an unruly dog. The liberals are the owner and the far left is this vicious dog that's really badly trained. That's just ruling the household, doesn't let them leave the room. They're letting that happen. They could boot that dog out. They could train that dog. Like They're the ones letting this happen to them. If they had more confidence in themselves and stood up and said, no, the power of these genuine far-left extremists would be diminished too. So the conservatives have the power to do this. The liberals have the power to do this. And honestly, actually, I think more on the liberals they've got way more power than the right because if the liberals stopped engaging and empowering the far-left ideologues and actually engaged on the topics that matter if they stop this constant demonization of white people you would cut off the source of that reciprocal extremism and things would get much better much a fascinating conversation this evening this is uh uh jack buckby uh, author of monster of their own making uh, it was a absolutely uh, incredible conversation, Jack. Thank you so much for joining us. And, um, you know, we'll hope to have you on the show once again in the future, if you're willing. Absolutely. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, both of you. Better, much quicker.